As you've probably noticed by now, we're in the book of Mark again today. And you may have also noticed that I am not Brian. This was not our plan. But the Lord in his wisdom knew that I was the one who's going to be preaching today. And I could do with reminding myself of that again. So would you join me one last time in praying to the Lord? Father, we thank you that you are a good and sovereign God. We thank you that you are faithful to use the small and unimpressive things of the world for your glory. We thank you that you, in your wisdom, have chosen something as small and easy to to forget or not notice as a book to change the world. So we ask that now, as we come to the preaching of your word, that you would be faithful through your spirit to use your words to change hearts. We pray that your book would speak with power through my small efforts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Scotland is a very small country. It's about 80,000 square kilometers. By contrast, The Philippines is about 300,000 square kilometers, so that's over three times as big. Germany is nearly four times as big, 357,000 square kilometers. India is, of course, 3.287 million square kilometers. I can't even do the math of how much larger that is. Lake Nyasa, which borders Malawi and Tanzania in Africa, which looks quite small on a world map, is large enough to swallow the entire landmass of Scotland in that single lake. Scotland has never been a particularly wealthy country. There's not a lot of natural resources in Scotland. Yet, if you were to try to tell the story of modern missions, of the spread of the gospel in the last 200 years, you would not be able to help but mention that small country over and over and over again. Let me give you just a fraction of the examples I could give you just from the 1800s. You had Scottish Christians who traveled to Denmark, to Russia, to Fiji, to Brazil, Mongolia, New Guinea. Scottish Christians were the first to translate parts of the Bible into Mandarin and Korean in the 1800s. Robert Moffat was the first missionary to go further inland than the Cape Colony in Southern Africa from Scotland. His more famous son-in-law, David Livingston, the first Christian to stand at the bottom of Victoria Falls. The famous mission to the New Hebrides, made famous by the Scottish missionary John G. Patton in his autobiography, took tens and tens of men from Scotland to small islands in the Pacific, where many of them were literally eaten by the people that they went to share the gospel to. The New Hebrides includes islands that are now called Vanuatu, which identifies nearly 100% as Christian today. Robert and James Haldane, Scottish Baptists, coordinated evangelism not only in England and Scotland, but also to much of Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Scots took the gospel to India, Egypt, and Uganda, all from a tiny country in a corner of the world. Why? Why would God use such a small place to such significant effect 
there's lots of answers that we could give for why there seems to be so much clear and evident fruit from men and women from that small nation in a short period of time. There are many reasons, again, like I said, the churches in Scotland, those small, many congregations consisting of 20 people or less, loved the Bible. And they loved Jesus. And they wanted other people to know about Jesus. But that was also true of many other churches in many other parts of the world at that time. They're connected to the British Empire that controlled the seven seas, that provided fairly accessible travel in a time when that wasn't so easy. But again, many other churches in many other countries were connected to that empire. I think one reason why the Lord has chosen to use a small country and small churches in that small nation is because God loves to use the humble devotion of the weak to make much of himself. We often think that it's the impressive people, the important people, the big, the strong, the intellectual, who are the ones who are going to make a difference. But God is far more likely to use the quiet prayers of a mother over her children than he is to use all the grand strategies and wisdom of the world to save people. God loves to use that which seems small to do much. That truth is hard for us to believe. And I think that's part of why Jesus underlines it for us at the end of his time of teaching in the temple complex in Mark 12. So if you turn there to Mark 12, we'll be looking at verses 38 to 44. It's in the context of Jesus having entered Jerusalem for the last time and having gone to the temple. Started back in chapter 11 of Mark, where Jesus entered the temple. And since then, we've, all the episodes that we've looked at are happening on the temple grounds on the same day. It starts by him cursing a fig tree on the way there that looked looked like a strong and impressive tree. It had leaves, but it had no fruit. And then following that, he has spoken with religious authorities in the, in the temple who have been questioning his authority. They were angered at the things that Jesus said. They tried to trap him. And throughout these two chapters, in all these conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus' authority has not been undermined. They have come to him again and again like contenders coming to the world champion and leaving. The only thing left clear being that Jesus has authority and that they have none. They go to expose Jesus and what has been exposed is their hypocrisy, their love of power and influence, their unbelief in the very God that they claim to represent. Jesus is clearly, at this point, the one qualified to teach with authority. And now, as part of his teaching, he, we come to this. His last teaching, before he leaves the temple for the last time. This is what Jesus chooses to end his teaching with. Verse 38, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. To put all of this in one big idea, one sentence that I hope captures what this is teaching, one that if you're not taking notes, this might be the best thing to write down. The main idea, Jesus condemns religious pride, but he loves humble devotion. Jesus condemns religious pride, but he loves humble devotion. We'll look at this in, in, two, in two points, in two sections. First, beware religious pride. Mark tells us that Jesus gives this statement in his teaching, which I think means he's trying to help us see that this is a continuation of his teaching ministry and what he's just been teaching. So if you look just above this passage, you'll see a section that's titled something like, Whose Son is the Christ? Mark wants to make clear that this is part of the same teaching session as that. Psalm 110, which Jesus quoted before, he quoted to show that the son of David was greater than David, to point to his own divinity as the Messiah. And that psalm, which he was quoting before, ends with this line, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will shatter chiefs over the earth. So maybe this last interaction with the religious leaders is an example of the judgment that will come on chiefs who oppose the Messiah, leaders who oppose the Messiah, the kingship of Jesus. But it's not just an example of judgment, it's also a warning. You see that the first thing that Jesus says, beware, be alert, watch out for the scribes. The scribes that he's talking about include both the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he's been in conflict with. It was a name that was given for anyone who devoted themselves to studying scripture, which included also writing out or scribing the word of God, making copies of it. In other words, this is the most general category that Jesus could have given to cover kind of all religious leaders in the temple. He tells the people who are gathered with him not to trust their religious leaders, but to beware, to be on guard. The men who were supposed to be the spiritual guides and caretakers of God's people were no longer like shepherds and more like rabid dogs. Jesus is posting a sign over their heads, beware, these bite. Why? Why is he warning about them? He lists out the things that they do, why, why we should be on guard against these kinds of religious leaders. Starting in verse 38, he says, they like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. These are all examples of how people would show respect and show honor to people in this culture that they were in. Because the scribes were religious leaders 
and men who handled and interacted with God's word, people wanted to celebrate and recognize it. And these were the culturally appropriate ways to do that, the normal ways to do it. So in those days, the longer your robe, the greater your position of respect and authority. That's why if you see old paintings representing kings or Caesars, they have these incredibly long flowing robes that no one could possibly walk in because those are not for keeping them warm. Those are for showing how glorious and honorable those kings were. So here the scribes were supposed to, culturally, wear longer robes than most people to show that they were worthy of particular honor and respect. In the market, it was required that everyone was supposed to stop what they were doing and stand up and greet scribes when they walked through the marketplace. The only exception was, say, a tradesman like a carpenter or blacksmith who, interrupting their work, would ruin the thing that they were working on. Other than that, everyone was supposed to stand up and greet them. In any room, there was an order for who sat where. There were seats of honor and seats for those who were less honorable. Having the best seats in the synagogue didn't mean you just had, you had the comfy chair or the seat closest to the tea and coffee for after the service. It meant having the seat that signified that you were most worth paying attention to when discussing God's word. In Afghanistan, where I grew up, this kind of culture still exists. When men sit in a room together, the younger you are, the closer to the door you're supposed to sit. And the older and more honorable are supposed to sit further away from the door. So for me, as a young boy, I was always supposed to sit close to the door. And part of that was the youngest person is supposed to help serve tea to everyone else. And being by the door, you can jump up quickly and pass the tea around. You'd have men sitting in a room and if an older man walked in, then everyone would have to shuffle close to the door to keep the right order to show who deserves most honor and the, the steps down. In Jesus' day, it was a similar norm, but scribes uh, took precedence over age. Scribes are actually supposed to sit in a higher seat of honor than even their own parents to show that they deserved respect and honor for handling God's word. Now, the problem that Jesus is saying with the scribes is not that they were receiving these signs of honor. Look back at the text. Beware the scribes who like these things. The problem is not they were receiving them. The problem was that they desired them. They wanted those symbols of importance. They loved to wear robes that stood out in the crowd, that drew attention to them, they loved it when they were walking down the marketplace, everyone having to interrupt what they were doing to greet them. Maybe they'd walk through and then pretend like they forgot something at home just so they could walk back again and see everyone stand up again. They loved it when they got to see their own parents have to stand up and move at the dinner table to give them the seat of honor. Augustine uh, old theologian says that Jesus condemned them not because they hold these positions of authority, but because they love them. For in these words, he accused their heart. Now, none can accuse the heart, but he who can inspect it. For it is right that to the servant of God, who holds some post of honor in the church, the first place should be assigned. Because if it were not given him, it were evil for him who refuses to give it. But it is no good to him to whom it is given. 
And he was saying it's good for us to honor those who have an honorable role because it would be bad to dishonor them. But the honor of men do nothing for the person receiving it. It doesn't advance them in any way. So it is good for us to honor those in authority over us. It would be wrong to interpret this text to mean that it is bad to honor your parents. It is bad to honor the elders and pastors of your church. It would also be bad for one of us pastors to read this and understand that we should never receive signs of people's respect. No, those who labor well in the teaching of God's word are worthy of double honor, So the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. But it is dangerous for those who are in authority to love the benefits of being an authority. Remember how James and John earlier asked Jesus to sit at his right and his left hand, the seats of honor in his kingdom. What did Jesus say to them? He said, they're acting like Gentiles who love to lord it over those who are under their authority. And what do we see now? We see the religious leaders of Israel, God's people, acting like Gentiles, loving to lord it over those who are in their authority, that they're in authority. Brother elders, this is a hard warning for us. When people reject your advice as a spiritual authority, why does it bother you? Are you concerned about their well-being? Are you more bothered that they didn't listen to you? Remember that these people are not ours. They are the Lord's entrusted to our care. And men of the church who aspire to be elders, or the many men who are visiting right now, you aspire to do spiritual good in the place where you are, it's a good and a noble task to aspire to the office of elder. But be careful in your own heart to discern why it is that you desire that role. Which do you want more, the task or the position? The honor of men will do you no good, even the honor of Christian men and women. Do you desire to be an elder because you desire to do spiritual good to others? Then the good news is, you don't have to wait to receive a position to start doing that. If that's why you want to be an elder, then you can start caring for others in an elder-like way, even now, in the way that you choose to use your time. If that's why you want to be an elder, what's stopping you right now? The result of religious leaders who love the position, not the people under them, is the next thing that Jesus says about the scribes. He says it in verse 40. They devour widows' houses. So instead of caring for God's people, they're consuming them, especially the weakest and the most vulnerable. Widows, especially in that society, were the most vulnerable people. There is no social services, providing money for people who are elderly and unable to provide for themselves. A widow who didn't have a husband would have difficulty finding a a commendable job to earn income with. So basically a widow is someone who has no more means of receiving help and support from anyone. And these are the kinds of people 
that now the religious leaders are taking advantage of and consuming. They're eating them up. Because the scribes worked in the synagogues or in the temple, they depended on financial support for the people because they wouldn't work a normal job that would earn them income. So it was often considered a sign of piety to provide meals for the scribes, to have them to your house for dinner. It was a way of showing that you wanted to support the ministry of the word in those days. An excellent way to show love to your elders today, I might add. But these scribes were using it, using their right to depend on others in an abusive way. They found the old ladies who knew how to cook best and went back to them over and over and over again, regardless of what it was doing to their save, the, that, those women's savings. They were devouring their households. They were like Eli's sons in 1 Samuel, who would pick out the best meat of the sacrifice to God for themselves to eat. Or they were like the shepherds of Israel that God condemns in Ezekiel 34. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. How different of an example is that than that of Paul, who chose to give up his rights, things that he could demand from churches, to do them spiritual good? How do you think Jesus, the good shepherd, felt and feels when he sees religious leaders who act like this? Who instead of spiritually feeding his people, feed off of his people, like bloated ticks. Brother Utterless, let me say once again, let us be on guard against this sort of attitude in our hearts. Church, pray for us as your elders that we would not be tempted towards religious pride. Pray that the Lord would keep us from ever being shepherds who are dangerous to you. Lastly, about the scribes, Jesus says that they, for a pretense, make long prayers. These scribes love to pray long and eloquent prayers, not for the sake of speaking for a long time to the Lord, but for the sake of being seen speaking to the Lord. Jesus is not against us speaking to the Father. He's not against us speaking to the Father for a long time. He did that himself. He did it so long that even his disciples would fall asleep while he was praying. He loved to speak to the Father. But he is against us speaking to the Father only so that we might be seen by other people. If you chase the approval of men, even in spiritual matters, the Lord is very clear that you are setting aside the approval of God. What is it that Jesus says at the Sermon on the Mount? If that's why you do good, you have already received your reward in full. The pats on the back, the applause, that's what you get. Prayers that are spoken with eyes looking around to see who's seeing me will never make it up to God's ears. 
So friends, ask yourself, why do you do religious things? Why do you think, do things that you think of as spiritual? Do you do them because you love the praise of other people? Or because you want to praise God? Do you love to listen to hear what other good things other people have to say when you're studying the Bible together? Or are you just waiting for the opportunity to show what you know so that people will be impressed with how well you know the Bible? When you share the gospel, are you doing it out of concern and love for your neighbors and friends and family who need salvation? Or are you hoping that you will get applauded when you tell your Christian friends how well you did even in such a hard situation? There are many worldly pressures outside of the church that press us to avoid godliness. But even more toxic is our own heart's ability to do godly things for worldly gain. To start to treat our church as a new arena to advance ourselves, to prove where we measure up compared to other people. That is dangerous and deadly to the soul. For all, you know, for all the warnings against unbelief that Mark talks about uh, in recording Jesus' ministry, there's only two times when he says, beware. Here, and in chapter 8, against the yeast, the influence of the Pharisees. So it seems that in Mark's eyes and in Jesus' eyes, the kind of sin that is most dangerous to the others around you is sin that is disguised in religious behavior. If this is why you do religious things in another religion, and especially if you've been, do this is how you realize even now that you've been following out Christianity is for the approval of other people, listen to what Jesus says in verse 40. They will receive greater condemnation. You may succeed in fooling the people around you into thinking that you love God, but you have not fooled Jesus. Yet, even for the religiously proud, there is hope of forgiveness. God promises to humble the proud, but he loves to show grace to the humble. If you repent and, you repent and trust in Jesus and his faithfulness, the Father will gladly receive you, no matter what you have done, no matter how you have treated the practices, the means of grace that he has given to you in the past. He will receive you gladly if you repent and trust in his son. There's a reason why the Bible tells us stories about people like Nicodemus and like Paul. It's to show us that even religiously proud leaders are not too far gone from God's grace. They too can be saved. Also, beloved members of this church, Jesus warns you away from this kind of leader. By God's grace and his kindness, I don't think you have leaders like that in this church. But you may face that one day. You may face it in another church or you may face it here. I pray that's never the case. But let me give you a few thoughts to think about how you or we should proceed 
if that were to happen. First of all, remember that the ungodliness of your leaders does not excuse your own unfaithfulness. One pastor says about this passage that ungodly leaders are dangerous because they close off the gospel from other people by their manner. People are quick to look at the sins of leaders and think that that excuses their own sinfulness as well. Or that that proves Christianity wrong because of a sinful leader. The wickedness of a religious leader does not excuse you from what the Lord has called you to do because ultimately you answer to the Lord, not your pastors. You don't answer to us simply because we're your elders. You answer to us as your elders where we speak the word of God accurately to you. We answer to the same shepherd. We have no authority to tell you that you are free to do something that Jesus didn't tell you you were free to do, and we have no authority to tell you not to do things that Jesus didn't tell you in his word not to do. So don't let the failing of a leader fool you into thinking that faithfulness to God doesn't matter. It does matter, even if it doesn't matter to your elders, to your mentors. It matters to God. Next, remember that Jesus is the chief shepherd, and he will hold ungodly leaders to account. They may look like they get away with it for now, but they won't always get away with it. The shepherd who loves you will cause them to give an account for how they've mistreated you. Thirdly, remember that authority is a good gift. Like any good gift, it can be abused, and when it's abused, it is terrible but it's wonderful when it's used rightly. So beware the temptation when you see abusive authority to dismiss all authority in your life. You know, a self-serving pastor can probably fit through any kind of test that you can think of to see if he's the right kind of pastor for you. But what can't be faked is genuine love and care. So if you want to find pastors who are worth following, find ones who genuinely love you and care for your good. Look for those kind of leaders. And then lastly, remember that you will also give an account to God for the kind of leaders that you listen to. 2 Timothy 4 says this very clearly that those who listen to false teachers, to self-serving teachers, will give an account for the kind of teaching that they chose to listen to and approve of by sitting there. So remember that not, you're not just a victim if you wind up someplace where there is abusive leadership. The Lord will ask you to give an account for that as well and how you responded. So beware religious pride. Our second point, much happier, celebrate humble devotion. We see this in the last three verses, four verses of this passage. Starting in verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people came and put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples, he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, 
but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So after finishing his teaching, we see Jesus is a very human man sitting down and people watching. He sits down opposite the treasury and watches the people go about their business. The treasury was a place to collect financial offerings dedicated to the temple uh, or dedicated to the Lord. So, for example, in Old Testament law, you had to redeem the firstborn child of your family and the firstborn of, of any livestock that you might have. Pointing back to Exodus, of course, the Lord rescued them out of Egypt. You had to pay money to the Lord to show that those belonged to him. The Lord gave specific commands about, with these financial gifts, what was equivalent to what on a sliding scale of what someone could afford as well as what the offering was supposed to be for. And the money that was given to this would go towards maintaining the temple, feeding the priests, all those sorts of things. So because of that, giving to the temple was not a private affair. You shouldn't think of it quite like you might think of taking up an offering in the church. Right? It's not Jesus is sitting and watching people walk up to a small box and they slip their hand in and walk on away. No, no, no. Because there was lots of law regulating how much you should and shouldn't give, there was a priest assigned to the treasury to speak to the person and evaluate whether this was the appropriate amount, amount for them to give or not. So what you were giving would be a very public affair for anyone who happened to be walking around because they're evaluating how much you ought to give and speaking quite you know, th these coins, they're from a different part of the region. Are they, are, do they match what the Lord's told us to give? All those kinds of discussions are going on. And of all the people giving money to the temple, giving large sums to the temple, Jesus notices and points out to his disciples the example not of the wealthy, but of this poor widow. I think even before we look at what he says, it's worth noting that in our own lives, in our own attitudes, even when we seek after discipling relationships and accountability, we're very slow to share our finances with other people, aren't we? That's often one of the last stages that we think is, is private. That's for me and the Lord to handle. But here we see Jesus seeking to, dis to disciple his disciples, even on how they think about money. He sees it as important and worth addressing, not only just at some point, but even after this long and lengthy clash with the religious leaders. This is the last thing that he's going to say before he leaves the temple grounds for the last time. It seems quite significant to Jesus, how people think about their money. Christian, do you treat your giving and your finances in that way? Is it an area where you've sought discipleship from other Christians? Have you considered asking godly Christians who you trust to look at your budget to help you think through how you plan to spend your money? This widow gives two small copper coins. These coins were called lepta, and they were worth so little that the western part of the Roman Empire didn't even have them in circulation. That's why we have that phrase, which, are, which makes a penny. He's actually explaining how much it's worth to people who are reading it in a different part of the empire who had never seen these coins. And two of them are worth the smallest coin in that part of the empire. 
it's estimated that these two coins would be worth about one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. One sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So take your salary that you get in a month, divide it by 30, and then divide that by 64. You can do it later at home when you can do it on some paper. Think about what that would be equivalent to for you. It's a small amount, though. Pitifully small. But it was also all that she had. So Jesus, looking at this, says that she has given more than all those put together who are contributing large amounts of money. They have given out of their abundance. She has given out of her poverty. Her offering was costly to her because it was all she had. And so God the Son shows us how, what worth God esteems us at. It's very precious to the Lord. Any of us can run the math and f- see that financially speaking, the gifts of the others would actually go a lot further in the temple, right? I mean, that amount of money doesn't even come close to paying for one loaf of bread to, pay, to provide for a priest for one meal. It doesn't come close to considering the cost of cleaning the temple courts or mending the high priest's rich garments. But in God's economy, two small copper coins given at great cost are worth more than thousands and millions of dirhams given out of abundant wealth. What God loves and treasures is not large sums of money given, but money given sacrificially, out of devotion, out of love for God. So which do you think that God will choose to use in a way that glorifies him? The amount of money that you think is impressive or the money that you give because you think that God is impressive and worth all that you have. The point, of course, is not that we should give less money. The point is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where do you val- how much do you value the money that you give to the church? Are you giving God your leftovers? Or are you carefully and wisely planning how to give money to the Lord and his work from the start? Practically speaking, if you're paid at the first of the month, don't wait until the 18th to think about how much you're going to give this month. If you think that God deserves the first place of affection in your heart, give him that priority in how you plan to spend what the Lord has given you. You know, there's counsel that's often given to people who don't have much money, who don't have much income, that at this point in your life, you should build the habit of generosity while you have little. Otherwise, you will not be generous when you have much. I've given that advice. I was received that advice. I've heard lots of other people give that advice. And there is wisdom to that. But that can also leave you feeling that like the little that you give right now isn't worth that much other than just sort of building a habit for you. But that's not what our Lord thinks about it. Jesus says that these two coins that the widow gave was worth more than all the rest that had been given to the treasury. Jesus didn't just teach that small gifts were also valuable. He taught that they were worth more than financially larger gifts if given at great cost. 
So brothers and sisters, those of you who have little, do not be discouraged at how little you have to give. If when you heard me say that giving was a public affair in the temple and you thought, oh my goodness, I'd be so embarrassed if people saw how much money it was that, that I just slipped in the offering bag. Do not be ashamed of what you have to give. The Lord knows, and he is proud of you. The only reason that we find this difficult to believe is because we still evaluate greatness and importance like the scribes do, looking at what seems impressive in the eyes of the world. But God loves to use the foolish things of the world to humble the wise. The people that this world might call the little people are the ones that God promises to use mightily in his kingdom. One powerful example of this that sprung to my mind as I was looking at this, at this text is from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis tells this sort of imaginary story of a field trip into heaven. And there's one point where he sees a procession coming. Let me read it to you. Some kind of procession was approaching us. This is in heaven. And the light came from the persons who composed that procession. First came bright spirits who danced and scattered flowers. Then on the left and right at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys on one hand, girls on the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow old. Between them went musicians. And after these, a lady in whose honor all this was being done. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance? Yes, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are all the women, young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to the back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. And now the abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. It's an imaginary scene, but it points to a heavenly truth. We will be surprised at who it is that's called to stand closest to the throne room of heaven. It will not be those who seem mighty and impressive in the eyes of the world, but those who are faithful with what the Lord gave them. Even if it was only the chance to show Christ's love to a butcher boy or the car washer at the mall. You, you may feel what I feel at this point, thinking about this passage, this widow who gave everything and is commended for it, this feeling of wanting to, to qualify or reduce or nuance what happened. I mean, this is a widow who is vulnerable, who had nothing, who had little, and then had nothing at the end of the story. You can easily think of all the examples of religious leaders who teach you that you must give your money to them if you want to prosper. While they live comfortably, the people under their care suffer. It's easy to see how predatory religious teachers could use this passage to teach that it is sin for you to hold back anything 
from the church. Let me first say that there are other passages of Scripture that talk about being wise stewards of money. Those are Scripture too. We must obey them as well. We don't get to pick which ones that we should obey at any given moment. There are ones that talk about managing your resources well, of providing for your family, how Christians must work to eat. But we also need to feel the full force of this text. This really is in the Bible. And this is not saying that you must give everything you have to this church or to another church. This is an example that is commended, not an example that's commanded. But I think the widow is demonstrating in her actions the truth that all we have belongs to God. So pastors or other religious leaders have no right to tell you that they deserve everything that you have. But God has that right. Everything that you have does belong to him. So let me ask you a couple of questions to help you think about how to apply this. What do you plan to have happen to what money you have, your financial resources, after you die? Where do you hope it will go? What do you want to be spent on when you don't need it anymore? What does that tell you about what you love most? Does it look any different than non-Christians around you? Are there portions of your life that you're unwilling to give over to God? Are there comforts or even good things in your life that you think, that's mine. God has no right to ask that of me. Are there things that you would resent God for taking from you? Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son to the Lord. Do you think that God owns your children? What if he chooses to never even give you children? What if he chooses to take them away from you before they're fully grown? What if he chooses to send them to a far country where you will never or rarely see them out of love for his kingdom? Would he still be worth worshiping? Or do you think that your children belong to you? Some of our own members in this church have challenges, strains in their relationships with their parents, with their spouses, because they love Jesus. Is Jesus worth the strain in those relationships? What if you were estranged from your husband or your wife, from your parents or your children on account of following Christ? Would he still be worth worshiping? Or maybe you do well in trusting those large, sort of big-ticket items to God. But what about the little things? Are you like Jonah, who thought he did well to be angry over a small vine that the Lord chose to wither? Do you find yourself doing well with sort of big areas of suffering, but when your car gets nicked or your phone gets broken, or you see another bill come in that's larger than you expected. How do you respond to those things? Do you trust the Lord with those things or are those yours? Brothers and sisters, all that we have belongs to God in the first place. What do we have that we have not received? 
this widow gave all that she had to live on as a sign of her complete devotion and dependence to God. It showed that she thought that all she had belonged to God. And in giving her last two coins, she laid down her life for God. And this, of course, is precisely what Jesus did. After this episode, he walks out the temple and walks toward the cross. He lays down his life out of love and devotion to his father. The widow's small gift of devotion foreshadows Jesus' own gift of devotion and love. Jesus, who in heaven was rich beyond all measure, for love's sake became poor. And out of his poverty, he laid down his life. He gave his life as an act of obedience and devotion so that any who believe and worship him, trust in him alone, would enjoy all the privileges, all the rights that he chose to lay down. The scribes used their rights for their own gain, for their own advancement. Jesus laid aside his rights that were far greater than what the scribes had for the immeasurable good of those under his authority as Messiah. How much do you think one life of a poor carpenter's son was worth to God on the cross. Jesus gave his own life and what in the world's eyes looked small and pitiful and unimpressive and unnoteworthy was of cosmic significance. It was the capstone of the Father's plan to save sinners. It was his enthronement, his elevation as the king of the kingdom of God, the great Messiah crushing the greatest of his enemies, death itself. And through Christ, even our own pitiful, small acts of obedience and devotion to God are made holy and righteous. Just like Christ loves to remove the sin stain on sinners and actually make us righteous before God, If we only trust in him, he also loves to take our crooked, our small, our pitiful acts of devotion and make them glorious. Our worship is not impressive in and of itself. Nothing you can do for God will ever earn his approval. But with his approval already through Christ, our acts of service is glorious, honoring, and beautiful to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness in teaching us so much. We thank you that though we are often discouraged when we look at the world and we do not see your kingdom looking impressive, it is great. We thank you for how you are faithful to use the small offerings of people who love you for your glory to great effect. We pray that you would help us to grow to see the world with your vision. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.